This is Seyfeddin Amos, and you're listening to Crypto and Grill. Crypto and Grill. It's Crypto Dantes here, your favorite time-traveling cyborg, and I'm joined by an economist today. He's also an author, a highly regarded academic, a visionary, a leader of men, and a true crypto advocate. It's Stig of the Pump. <laughs> You'll be glad to hear I've escaped from my basement. Well done. Well done, Stig. Things are looking up for you. Things are looking but, up. But, but seriously, though... Our guest is someone amazing. Uh, welcome, Seyfedeen Amous. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. No, thank you for, for dialing in. So awesome. Yeah, it's great to have you here. And um, so we have quite a packed agenda that we were hoping to get through today. Um, and I think one of the things, um, the, the main thing that we wanted to go through was um, your book, The Bitcoin Standard. Um, what, uh, what an amazing book that is. I know that's the, personally, that's the reason that um, I am so confident on, on Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency in general. Um, but um, yeah, it definitely served its purpose for me to educate me and understand the space more and understand the importance of the innovation that is Bitcoin. Um, not just from a, a software or technological perspective, but really the economic backdrop and the philosophy behind it. Um, you know, I, I hadn't really questioned before um, Keynesian economics and uh, and perhaps that there could be a different way with uh, with the Austrian school of thought. So it was really great to to see your book laying it out step by step um, and taking uh, taking me on that journey. And I guess that's what we're hoping to do with the podcast in general as well to help people understand the space more. So um, it would be fantastic if we could uh, take that uh, approach for the for the podcast today. And um, but first, before we do that, if we could just hear a bit more about yourself, who you are, um, and how long you've been uh, been an advocate or, or um, a student of Bitcoin. Well, I'll, uh, thank you very much for having me. I'll just say that, you know, I, I'm not really comfortable with calling myself an advocate for Bitcoin. And uh, I'm not very comfortable saying I'm very confident that it uh, will succeed. I'm uh, I'm an economist who's interested in studying it. And uh, that's what I really do. Now, you draw your own conclusion. Um, I'm not uh, giving investment advice and I'm not telling everyone they should buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin uh, has a lot of risks involved in it and uh, people should be very careful about what they do, how they get into it. So I, I just want to be clear that, you know, I don't, uh, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm an economist who's interested in studying this. I'm not uh, in it for, uh, for, for promoting or evangelizing, I would say. Um, but having said that, of course, I think Bitcoin is an enormously interesting technology that has uh, an incredible uh, potential uh, in what it does. Um, I'm an academic economist. I live in Beirut, Lebanon. I have been uh, researching and studying uh, Bitcoin for maybe six, seven years, something like that. I'm not even sure when I first heard about Bitcoin. It was probably in 2010. Um, but I was, you know, I, I took me quite a while to uh, take it seriously and then to take it seriously enough to study it and then to try and uh, understand it and then to um, develop enough of an understanding of taking it seriously properly, I would say only really started in 2013 or 2014 is when I really started to uh, appreciate that, yeah, this thing is uh, is not just an experiment that's uh, a flash in the pan that's going to go away. It's likely got legs. And uh, since then, I've been, um, you know, it's, uh, as I'm sure many would relate, it's just this uh, black hole that keeps sucking up more and more of your time. And you just keep uh, <laughs> digging into it deeper. And, you know, I still wouldn't say I understand Bitcoin yet, um, but uh, I've certainly been enjoying uh, learning about it and writing about it and talking about it over the last few years. 
Yeah, it's so it's it's a common theme. Anybody that you speak to um, is uh, that that knows about Bitcoin and, and is um, has has like you said studied it and looked into it. The more you read, the more interesting it becomes, and and it's kind of you know it's like an onion. You peel back layer after layer, and it just brings something new um, to your thought process. So um, yeah, I think everybody uh, goes through that at, at some point. Um, so. Um, I was really hoping we could um, focus the conversation around the Bitcoin standard. So you recently wrote and published the Bitcoin standard, um, a fantastic book, great overview of uh, the origins of money and, and perhaps how different views of economics and schools of thought, economic schools of thought and uh, play into that and, uh, and where Bitcoin might also play a role. One of the things that always comes up when, um, when I start talking and myself and, and, and stick start talking to friends, family, colleagues um, about about Bitcoin is um, the you have to actually unpack it and go all the way back to the origins of money to really be able to have a good debate about uh, about what it is and perhaps what it might represent. So I was wondering whether you could take us back and just start there and, and, and help the audience understand what money is. The way that I like to think of it is that uh, money is uh, quintessentially, you know, its essence, its its, its qualia is uh, is that it is a medium of exchange. It's something that is acquired not for its own sake, but in order to be exchanged for something else. Uh, this, I think, is the quintessential property of what makes money. And so, you know, uh, by that measure, pretty much anything uh, can be money if you buy something with the purpose of simply exchanging it on later on and it's not an investment it's not an asset that yields a return it's just something that you exchange for the sake of exchanging it on later on then that thing is performing uh, the function of money for you um, that's that's primarily what it is now the point the starting point of my book is to discuss what it is that gets chosen as money and in my opinion my argument is that at this point in history and for the past couple of hundred years, the advancement of technology and industrialization has made the physical properties of uh, money themselves not that important anymore. And what is the most important property to give something a monetary status, in my opinion, is the economic uh, nature of the good, specifically the supply and um, you know, historically, what ended up being money all over the world was gold, because it is the hardest money. It is the hardest thing to make. It's the uh, it's it's very rare and it's very expensive to produce, and the cost of producing gold is uh, continuously increasing because you know it's uh, it, it's very hard to extract it. And so, the difference between gold and other um, assets is that. If there is an increase in demand for any other asset because people are using it as money, that causes its price to rise and that causes people to want to make more of it. And so people will start producing more of it and that will bring the price of it crashing down. Mm -hmm. And so any money that is easy to make is likely not going to survive long as a good store of value because people won't be able to store their value in it properly. So that's why, historically, whatever gets chosen as money is usually whatever is the hardest to make. And that's why I find Bitcoin extremely interesting, because uh, if it continues operating successfully, Bitcoin is the first example of hard, oh, is, is the hardest money that we've ever seen. It's, in, in a few years, its supply growth rate is going to drop below that of gold. And so it's going to have an even lower supply response than gold has and that i think makes it uh, likely to continue to uh, appreciate in value because more and more people are going to want to store value in it and there won't be um, there won't be there won't be a supply response that can increase the supply in response to the increased demand so about 82 percent of all the bitcoins ever mined uh, that whatever exists have already been mined. And so all that's left is the 18% of the Bitcoins that are going to be mined over the next 100 years or so. But that's basically it. You know, that's uh, that's all there is. So no matter how much people demand Bitcoin, Bitcoin's supply is going to stick to this number. 
Okay, so that's a really, a really, really interesting in, uh, segue through everything. So one of the things I just want to come back to then is, is how do we make the move from the gold standard into fiat currencies of today? And then how, what's going to be, what's going to potentially come next based on challenges that they face? So, um, I mean, the the way that I see it is that the gold standard worked really well. It was, uh, the, the and I discussed this in my book, the period between the 1870s and 1910 was when the vast majority of the world economy was on uh, the gold standard. And these countries could all trade together on the same monetary standard. There were no foreign exchange markets because all currencies were just different weights of gold directly exchangeable for each other. Exchange rates were similar to exchanging from the meter to the inch. You know, it's just a clear conversion of uh, weight units. Um, the um, the move towards uh, uh, government-controlled money was never uh, uh, was never really under the pretense that government could give better money than gold. It was initially just uh, out of necessity uh, for financing war and financing government operation. But over time, you know, governments became so enamored with the idea and so dependent on it that uh, they decided to, uh, you know, they, they, they took they took the situation further and they continued to do more and more of it. And uh, they practically forced their populations to use uh, their own currencies. They've confiscated gold in most economies, uh, most of the industrial economies. And they've basically, you know, the the central banking system ensures that the monopoly banking system uh, continues to operate with uh, uh, government currency. However, we see this dynamic continue, the one that I was mentioning in terms of the hardness of the money. We see that dynamic continue with government monies in that the currencies that are the hardest to produce are the ones that hold on to their value better over time. So, you know, the, the, the British pound, the uh, US dollar, the euro, the Swiss franc, these currencies increase every year at around four, five, six percent or something like that on average, maybe, you know, down to zero, up to 10 percent, something like that. But there's relative predictability. It's, it's not as hard as gold, which increases every year by around one to two percent. But, you know, it's miles better than uh, many third world country uh, currencies, which increase every month, every year by 20, 40, 50, 100, maybe more percentage points. So, um, and by within, increase there, you're, you mean um, the, the volume of production of, of that currency that's uh, circulating? Yes, the supply. Yep. Yeah, I'm referring to the supply. Yeah. So you, you see that dynamic continues in, in, in that regard. Um, yeah, that's how I would think of it. Okay, so then, so if we take, so in your book, you, 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 you take a really nice um, story over a few hundred years through from um, rye stones uh, in, in, in the Pacific to uh, the use of seashells as money and then all the way through to the gold standard. And, this, and the point of which I think you, you kind of focus in on is, is World War One, when um, countries needed to expand their monetary supply to be able to, to under, effectively finance the war efforts. Um, since that point, since 1914, we've been in a, in a, in a system and that system has pervaded globally of uh, fiat uh, currencies and these, these these are fiat currencies that are government controlled, as you said, uh, where the supply is is owned by the central banks of these governments. Um, that very much represents Keynesian economics uh, and and the Keynesian philosophy sort of um, fed through and and still prevalent today. What's the alternative view from the Austrians? Um, because I think, as I've read your book, the um, that alternative Austrian methodology and approach, or philosophy rather, um, seems to be one of sound money and, and time preferences. So it'd be good to just understand the difference between Austrian economics and Keynesian economics. So the differences are many. There's the ideological differences, um, but there's also, of course, the methodological differences in terms of the way in which the economic questions are asked, the reason you ask the questions, and what kind of answers you try to arrive at. Um, but I would say, in general, the uh, main distinction primarily between what the Austrian school would argue and what the mainstream of economics would argue now is in the understanding of economics 
um, well, eh, lots of main differences. I would say at the root of the differences is let's just go all the way and um, go to the back to the root of the differences. I'm not gonna. I'll, I'll come to the to the implications a little bit later. But fundamentally, the difference is about the conception of value. So Austrian economics believes that value is subjective. That all value fundamentally is subjective. There's no existence to value in material things outside of how we as human beings perceive them. And so um, the mainstream and the Keynesian schools of economics have objective conceptions of value where value can be measured and you know utility or the amount of valuation that people get from things can be accurately measured and put into models and human decisions can be mathematicized and studied mathematically. Um, this, I think, is the root of the difference. And, um, you know, the Austrian school approach was predominant in, uh, I would say, in the 19th century. It's, it was the classical economic approach, and it was similar to, um, you know, many economists, not just in Austria, but all across Europe. However, in the 20th century, um, the, the British and American uh, institutions effectively dominated. And um, the... Implication of that difference, uh, the, 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 or the real sort of real-world implication of the different ways in which they approach the economic questions of uh, uh, of the economic questions in general, is that in the Austrians, in in the Keynesian school, the role of the economist is fundamentally from the perspective of government. What is it that government should be doing? You know, the textbook of economics. I like to joke to my friends is that it's 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 almost written like a um, religious book, and the government plays the role of God in that book. You know, government is the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent power that is just overseeing everything. And so, your role as a Keynesian economist is to study the economy and to figure out what it is that the government should do to make things better. That's fundamentally the premise from which it begins. And, you know, from the Austrian school's perspective, um, you know, if you understand that value is subjective, if you understand that individuals make their own decisions and that it is not possible for someone to um, improve on your decision by forcing you to take a decision because there's no way that someone has your interest and your knowledge as well as you do, um, so you want you start realizing that there's it's not just that you know that, that there's no need for uh, central planning for economic central planning for centralized economic decisions for government to make decisions for individuals. In fact, you start realizing the absolutely destructive implications of the notion of um, uh, having decisions being taken at a central level for people, having economic decisions being enforced on people, preventing people from having the freedom to deal with their own economic reality based on their own terms and their own preferences and their own uh, um, reasoning. And that, that's, I think, a, a very high-level um, explanation of the difference between, you know, why methodologically there is a difference and then the way that they look at economics, the, the way that they look at the role of the state. And so it follows that the implication is that from the Austrian perspective, you know, the question is never what should the state be doing. The question is just analyzing economic phenomena and trying to understand how they unfold and how they, um, um, you know, how, how things happen as they are. And um, the, 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 the only political implication you can arrive at is generally what is considered libertarianism, considered ideology. And this is why people think that, you know, Austrian economics is too ideological, but it's it's really not ideological. It's, it's the scholarly conclusion you arrive at once you understand how markets work, how the nature of knowledge in markets is distributed. You understand that the only way that a market can work to meet the ends of the people that are involved in it is if the people are allowed to make their own decisions on their own. That's, I think, the main difference. So then when you apply that to the monetary sphere, you get two very different perspectives on the monetary question. From the Keynesian perspective, you have the approach of government should be managing the money supply and then let's sit, all sit together and figure out how do we do it 
how we can do it properly, you know, how, what should be the rate of increase of the money supply, how do we regulate the banks, how do we do this, how do we that, do that. That becomes the question that is asked from the context of Austrian from sorry, Keynesian economics. Whereas from the Austrian perspective, the questions are usually of the sort of, you know, um, what would be the impact of government intervention in the monetary market and how a free market monetary system could emerge. And so this is why um, Austrian economists understand that in the free market, gold would emerge as money. And this would be the free market's choice of money. Um, so that needs no governmental role. The, the emergence of gold did not happen because governments chose gold as money. Um, governments had to accept gold as money because the market accepted gold as money. So this is, I think, whereas, you know, from the Keynesian perspective, they... Um, the mainstream economic perspective, you know, money is in many cases and for many schools defined as what government will accept for taxes. So I guess this is a, what I would say is the difference is. And, and just you touched there on, on gold being chosen by, by governments as, as what they call money. What are those properties that make gold such an attractive um, choice over other things, silver or um, seashells? It's simply the hardness in producing it. It's just hard to make more gold. It's uh, it's it's the um, most scarce element on earth, or one of the most scarce on earth. But the more important thing than the uh, scarcity is the fact that since it does not corrode, that means that all of the gold that people have been piling up over thousands of years has been adding up in stockpiles that people hold today. Which means that the new production that we produce every day is likely to be quite insignificant by comparison in terms of volume to the new supply. This is why effectively gold is the closest thing we have to a pure monetary good because the supply and the demand is, uh, I mean the demand is met purely from the, not purely, but the majority of the demand for gold, the majority of new demand for purchasing gold is met from existing holders rather than from new production. And so if the price of gold spikes, it's not possible for gold mining to uh, triple or quadruple annual production. Annual production of gold every year has been at around 1% to 2% of global gold stockpiles. This has been the case for about almost 100 years now, for which we have reliable data. Every year, you know, we our technology improves a little bit more, so it allows us to dig a little bit deeper and make a little bit more gold. But the price of gold is always close to the cost of mining it, very and the um, and the quantity that is mined is always very tiny compared to the existing stockpiles that people have, and so therefore. This means that the price of gold is primarily, or the price of gold, if it were a monetary, if it were a purely monetary good, its price would be determined from supply and demand purely as a monetary good. But that's not entirely the case with gold because some of its supply and demand is not, some of its demand is not monetary, like industrial uses, and some of its, uh, and some of its supply does still come from mining, about one to two percent. Bitcoin has around 4% of its supply currently coming from uh, mining every year, but that continues to drop, and by about 2024 or 25, it's going to drop below the rate for gold. Mm -hmm. okay. So uh, so, what happened, so what happens if people suddenly, uh, what I'm just thinking about is sort of the time preference of money, and what happens if people suddenly devalue or lose uh, appetite for value in gold in the way that it does? Um, so I guess my question actually is more around how important is the time preference of money and why is gold potentially important on that basis and also then specifically why Bitcoin is going to be particularly important going forward? So time preference is a concept that is uh, uh, quite uh, prevalent uh, amongst Austrian economists. I would say more than amongst uh, mainstream economists, although both understand it and, and uh, talk about it. Time preference refers to the ratio at which individuals discount the future, the ratio at which you uh, discount the future to the present. Mm -hmm. In other words, if I asked you, uh, if, if I owed you $100 right now, and then I told you I'm going to pay you back next year, what amount do I have to pay you extra 
from today to next year for you to accept to uh, delay taking it in. So if I told you I'd pay you $101 next year, would you accept it or not? That's that you know if you accept that then you're relative this is a relatively probably a low time preference that you know you're willing to delay your consumption of the uh, dollar by one year for of the $100 you're willing to delay your receipt of the $100 by one year in exchange for 1% of the value mm-hmm. um, if you needed 20 bucks to be convinced by that then that's more like a, lo- a high time preference because now you need a much higher value so it means that you know you value the present more than the future and now it's it's important here to understand that time preference is always positive meaning that everybody always values the present over the future so there's no rational scenario in which an individual will prefer less money tomorrow over more money today. You know, there's no scenario in which you would delay taking the 100 today in exchange for 95 tomorrow because you would be losing value and, you know, you might as well just take it now. So people always, and given the choice between 100 and 100 over a year, everybody would have a, would choose taking the money right now. And ultimately, that goes back to the fact that individuals don't live forever. The fact that we are on this earth for a limited amount of time, our time is scarce. And so therefore, you know, every moment that I get the money earlier is a moment in which I'm able to satisfy more of my needs earlier. And so continue with my life with more and more of my needs satisfied. And Or another way of thinking of it is that um, the uncertainty of the future means that you always prefer to take and accept things today and so therefore you know people always prefer to consume things in the present over the future and when you have a high time preference you have a very high degree of preferring the present over the future when you have a low time preference you prefer the present more than the future but less you know Uh, or the degree of preference is lower so you would be willing to accept a smaller compensation to delay your gratification. I think this is an enormously important concept in economics. I think this might be the most um, important concept for individuals to learn about economics. It's something that I make sure to include in every class that I teach about economics because I think it's, it's just absolutely pivotal. Um, because fundamentally, as an individual, over time, there's nothing that's going to be more um detrimental or more important to your likelihood of success in whatever endeavor you choose to undertake than your time preference, than your discounting of the future. Because if you're a person who's fixated on the present and you don't think too much about the future, then you continue to take decisions for the present in ignoring the future. The future eventually catches up with you and you pay the price heavily. If you continue to focus on the future, eventually, you know, things um, shape up for you in the future and things continue to get better. And the best way to understand this is through saving and spending. You know, people with a high time preference are likely to spend more and more of all the money that they have. It's hard for them to be able to put money aside for the future. People with a low time preference are more likely to save. And of course, you know, financially, you, you know that over time, the people who are likely to save are going to end up in a different situation than those who don't. Much better situation. So in my book, the, the, the point that I make, the reason that I get into time preference in such depth is that the issue of time preference, I think, is fundamentally related to the hardness of money. When your money is hard, which was the case under gold, then you have a very good um, idea about the value of your wealth into the future. So you can always, if, if you put your money in gold, you can be fairly certain that it's going to either hold its value or appreciate slightly into the future. And so this was, you know, this offers people the ability to reliably find a way to delay gratification and to save money, to reduce their consumption in order to increase their revenue in, in order to increase their consumption in the future. And that's really the process that begins the capital accumulation that begins saving, that begins the uh, process of economic growth. So when money is hard, people are able to save more. People are likely to save more. People consume 
as people invest more. And as a result, you get more economic growth and over time, the material standards of living improve. That's basically the process of civilization. And that's why, you know, as civilization progresses, the hardness of the money just keeps on getting harder. Um, and um, as you move towards an easy money, what happens is that, which you see in the West today and all over the world today, is that the countries that had savings rates that were pretty high in the 19th century now have much lower savings rates. Why? Well, because the value of the money is depreciating. So people can't expect their money to hold value onto time over time. And so you have a strong incentive to spend it. And you have little incentive to save because you get low interest rates on your savings because, you know, the interest rate is the price of saving. And since government is increasing the money supply by introducing more and more loans, you know, they're making borrowing cheaper and they're making saving more, uh, less rewarding. And so that skews everybody's incentives away from saving towards spending. And that's why I think if you look over the last 50 years, you know, since the last link between fiat government currencies and gold has been removed, you see that savings rates across the West have been dropping. And they are much lower now than where they were uh, 50 years or 100 years ago or 150 years ago. And I think, uh, you know, my contention, I discussed this extensively in the book, is that this is related to the hardness of money. And so what really, really, really excites me about Bitcoin is this issue of time preference, because it's... It's for me. It's it's the logical next technological step that we've managed. You know, we had the hardest money that we've ever gotten to was gold. We built that, and then governments ruined it because they ruin everything that's good, and they took us back hundreds of years in economic terms, in terms of uh, um, economic advancement, by bringing us back this messy, terrible monetary and financial system that continues to collapse all the time and is has these currencies that are continuously degrading in value. And now we found, as a species, we found a technological fix for this problem that is government control of money. We found the money that is even harder than Bitcoin, than gold. We have found the money that is even harder than gold and also that is much harder for governments to control. And that's really what uh, is is exciting about Bitcoin because the implication of it is that if we have if everybody in the world has access to a hard money again, I think the impact on the world in terms of uh, how how much prosperity can be created and how much the quality of life around the world will improve and just how much more peaceful the world will, will be when people can trade and cooperate with each other and productivity continues to increase all over the world. I I, I for one can't wait. Perfect. Now, thank you for giving us that overview. That's exactly what we were hoping for. Um, uh, so, you, as you said, you explore these things in the book. Um, one of the things that just be good just to touch on before we go a bit deeper into um, some of the things that Bitcoin represents and how to um, respond to questions about Bitcoin, um, it's just about that um, link between um, government and money. So um, I think what you said is gold used to be um, the the measure of, uh, of payments and, and, um, and wealth between governments, and we moved away from the gold standard um, into an era of fiat money. And as you outlined there, that that notion of time preferences, um, sound and, and hard money. Um, as soon as you move into a Keynesian economic uh, principle and you give control of that, um, the, the money and the issuing of the, um, the currency to the central banks and to government and you link central banks and policymakers, then what you, I think what you've alluded to there is you end up extrapolating that sort of 100 years and you end up in a situation whereby if governments and central banks don't coordinate their activities well and they don't act with discipline and um, and sound economic um, principles you end up in situations of hyperinflation where you have um, the situation we have at the moment with Venezuela, Argentina, um, Turkey there's many different countries around the world that are starting to um, experience this at the moment I think in your book, you mentioned that there's been 57 instances since World War One, I, I think, um, of, of hyperinflation, whereas before yeah. before that happened, before there was that move away from the gold standard, 
there's no recorded uh, instance apart from I think France in the, during the Napoleonic Wars when um, uh, when they sort of uh, experimented with inflating their um, their currency. So. Um, yeah, I was just wondering if it's uh, just worth contextualizing where we are today, just before we move on to um, to really explore Bitcoin in, in depth, um, just about the situation and, and the fiat currencies and government control. Well, so uh, can I can I just pick up a point, uh, a, a discussion that I was having today, actually, is just a segue into that. Of course, you go, Stig. Go. Uh, so one of the questions or one of the conversations that I was having this week, actually, in, in quite some detail with a friend of mine is, is about this point around... Keynesian economics and fiat and how fiat is deflationary and uh, reducing over time, all on the basis that Bitcoin is inflationary and will increase in value over time. Um, and the discussion that we really got to was that in many, in, in the eyes of many at the moment, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general is affixed to a broken global economy situation or s- structures that has really been driven by Keynesian economics. Um, however, the argument kind of that they, this individual posted was over this period, the general standard of living for everyone across the globe has actually drastically, drastically improved. Um, and their challenge was, well, does does it actually mean that global economic uh, economic policy is really broken if everyone is better off than they were 100 years ago? And it was quite an interesting angle. And it would be great to sort of to hear your thoughts around uh, a kind of the economic world that we live in. And if everyone is better off, does anything really need to change, I guess, is probably the question that I'm alluding to. And if so, why? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, many people will think, well, you know, the world isn't doing too badly. Standards of livings are going up all over the world. Um, and of course, that is true. Um, poverty has been uh, getting eliminated all over the world. But, you know... Um, there are a lot of other things going on in the world as well, and it doesn't necessarily follow that the monetary system that we have is responsible for the improvements just because it is the one that we have right now. And in fact, there's a very, um, I would find, compelling case to be made that things would be far, far better for the world if we did not have this scourge of modern central banking devaluing currencies all over the world, causing business cycles and recessions all over the world. And in fact, um, you know, the the improvements that we see are a result of technology. They're a result of spreading technology all over the world. There are a few technologies, not a few, several technologies over the last 200 years invented that will transform people's lives quite significantly. Primarily, it's it's uh, it, it's the application of um, hydrocarbon energy. You know, it's, it's the ability to use engines to operate uh, machinery, engines, and, um, you know, modern running water, heating, um, sewage system. The ability to build those things is one of the best things that has happened to humanity in the last thousands of years. You know, the Industrial Revolution and all of its uh, great trappings. So once the steam engine and the internal combustion engine were invented, uh, there was always going to be an enormous amount of growth just from their application and, and they travel around the world as people continue to uh, as people continue to use them more and more and uh, utilize them uh, better. So, um, in in my opinion, the improvements in the quality of life are a result of these technologies. And in my book, I discuss how, if you want to really think of the in, the inventions, the most striking inventions, the golden era for inventions was also the era of the golden standard. We think of the 20th century as being the most advanced, and of course it is the most advanced because it came after the 19th century, and so it built on everything that came to us from the 19th century. But in fact, the most important inventions that we have today, the inventions that made the modern world, were primarily invented in the 19th century, or specifically they were invented under the gold standard before 1914. So if you think of the engines, the, the internal combustion engine, the steam engine, and the car, the airplane, the subway, the telephone, the um, um, music recorders, the telegraph. I mean, essentially, these things came in the 19th century under the gold standard. And they came because we had a world economy in which the entire world was one economic zone using one currency able to trade freely with one. Well, not necessarily freely, but because there was one currency that was a significant um, 
advantage in, in trade, which today we don't have, even though we have more advanced technologies for trade, uh, for, for moving things around. We have too many political barriers and we have the foreign exchange barrier, which makes trading more and more complicated for anybody who does it. So the global economy and the low time preference that hard money engenders in people that developed over generations under the gold standard where people continue to be able to save wealth into the future. This is going to lead towards people thinking of the long term, saving for the long term, planning for the long term and producing, you know, more and more capital accumulation leading to more and more economic growth. That's how the world was in the 19th century. And in my opinion, the move towards an easy monetary standard has set us back tragically. And, you know, the most obvious way, of course, is that the move towards a monetary, uh, a government-run monetary standard is primarily responsible for why we ended up having two such huge world wars and why we ended up having so many megalomaniac genocidal um, leaders in the 20th century, all of whom operated on easy money. You know, there was no Mao or Stalin or Hitler who had a gold standard. Every one of these megalomaniac leaders that you can think of, they came into power. Either they removed the gold standard or they came into power after the gold standard was removed. There was no way to continue to finance a government that... Um, carries out the insane things that governments have carried out in the 20th century, there's no way of financing it um, through sound money because you simply run out of it and it's, it's, it's too hard to tax it from people. But when you have the money printer uh, in the hands of government, you, you, you increase the ability of government to carry out wars and um, uh, crimes significantly. And I think you know, when you factor in the hundreds of millions of people who died in the world wars and in the genocides and in under government um, murder and government regimes across the 20th century, and you think of where we would be if we had had a hard money that had limited the power of these governments, how much more advanced we'd have been, what kind of technological improvements we could have uh, come across since then. I think it makes, uh, it, 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 I, I find it a more compelling argument. I think we'd be having far faster economic growth all over the world. We'd have far more free trade. We'd have far more uh, technological advancement, technological uh, spread across the world. And uh, the poor of the world would be doing even better. Amazing. Thank you for that, Saif. That's really insightful. Um, I'm I wanted to move the conversation just to focus on Bitcoin a bit more now. Um, you've already given us some of your um, views on it. I wanted to kind of take a view as a, um, a newbie to Bitcoin and ask some of those basic questions. I was hoping um, you, you do cover these in your book. And um, again, if we already haven't shielded it enough, anybody listening, you have to read Safe's book. It's, uh, it's <laughs> something that will just uh, really open your eyes uh, to all kinds of different things. But if we focus on Bitcoin, one of the easiest things for people to throw back at um, when you start talking about Bitcoin is it's not backed by anything. How do you respond to that? Well, I think, you know, the, it's uh, the backing of things is not necessary for things to have value because, you know, Gold are not backed by anything. Um, the land on which you live doesn't isn't backed by anything. Um, things have value because people give them value, and then um, you know a market emerges for them, and then the value emerges on the market. And that's true for anything, and it is true for Bitcoin. So yes, if everybody tomorrow decided that Bitcoin has no value, then yeah, it would have no value. But also. If everybody tomorrow decided that gold has no value, that tomatoes have no value, that um, you know that, that, that a piece of land uh, has no value, that nobody wants to be there, then it also has no value. So um, fundamentally, you know, the conception of value is subjective, as I was mentioning earlier. And so things have value because they uh, get it on a market. If a free exchange people get it, then it's it's got that value and bitcoin every day you know billions of dollars are exchanged 
billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin are exchanged every day at prevailing prices. So for a very large number of people around the world, this Bitcoin price makes sense. They buy and sell it. So maybe it'll go up, maybe it'll go down. But the notion that it needs to be backed by something, I think, is is uh, it, it it is its own thing. It's the asset has its value because it's the thing that you need in order to operate this network. And so, if you want to operate this network, if you want to use this digital cash system, you need to buy Bitcoin because you need to pay the transaction fees with Bitcoin, and you need to use Bitcoin to send it and receive it. So, will this thing get a value on the market? It did. So the fact that it does, you know. That's all that you need to know. The fact that it's digital doesn't mean that it can't have value. I think this is a big misconception. You know, if you're, if I take your laptop and I return it to you in the same physical state, but I erase everything that is on it, you know, that that has value to you, right? Yeah. You wouldn't want that to happen. So, digital things can have value, and backing isn't necessary for anything uh, to have value. It's something that is used to give, um, you know, it's something that's used to give things that have no value of themselves give them a much higher value so you get a piece of paper that's worth a few cents and you just sprinkle some ink on it and you say this is now worth $100 well you know this is this is the sort of thing that needs backing because on a free market the price of that piece of paper would be 3 cents maybe but when you uh, you know when government puts guns to people's head and forces them to accept it and makes the only banks legal in the country forced to use it and accept it then you know that gives it more value and and people will attach more value to it but bitcoin's value was one on the market people pay for bitcoin because they want to not because somebody forces them to it so it doesn't need any backing okay perfect um Another one that's very easy to uh, to say out loud and uh, without much thought is Bitcoin can't compete with Visa. Fifteen or seven transactions per second versus ten thousand. Yep, it can't and it won't and it shouldn't. It's a meaningless uh, metric. Uh, Bitcoin um, Visa can be built on top of Bitcoin. I mean, I, the way that I like to think of it is this. Imagine if the world's central banks tomorrow decided that they were to adopt Bitcoin as a reserve currency. And I'm not saying this will happen. I'm just saying it as a uh, thought experiment. Then, you know, for the half a million or maybe one million most valuable transactions between the largest central banks and financial institutions around the world, these one million transactions will be settled with Bitcoin. primarily uh, directly on the bitcoin blockchain and then all the other transactions will be settled you know through um, all the other transactions will be just basically um, done off chain off ledger transactions then you know you could have the entire global economy including visa and mastercard and all of that running on bitcoin so when you make a payment with visa there are no physical dollars moving uh, it's, it's just entries and ledgers being marked off between uh, your bank and my bank across the world. Um, and the same thing could be done on top of Bitcoin. Uh, and this is why, you know, in my book, I, I, I keep repeating this. It's, Bitcoin can't really be thought of as a consumer payment network. Bitcoin is not a payment network. Bitcoin is a base asset. Bitcoin is base money. And it's a, um, it's, it's a settlement network on top of which you're going to get payment networks. Um, it could be Visa. But um, it most likely will evolve significantly um, to fit the capabilities of Bitcoin. Yeah, if I if I take a um, step out of my challenging um, uh, chair at the moment, take the, take that hat off. I think I, I totally agree with you, and I think um, you know, people quite often, in my view, seem to get lost in the white paper and seem and say this isn't the original vision for the white paper, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they forget that actually a white paper is just the idea and it's uh, an initial concept. It's not to say that that's exactly where it should be in in 10, 20, 30 years. And I think where we are at the moment, I I read a a really interesting article recently um, by a chap called Nick Carter, um, who gave quite a nice analogy. He said, look, if we're talking about Bitcoin, 
it's as as you stated there, safe. It's um, Bitcoin is a settlement layer. It's container ships, not parcels. So you know, Visa. There's room for Visa, much um, a Visa competitor, um, via the Lightning Network, side chains, or other things um, in conjunction with Bitcoin. But Bitcoin fundamentally is huge value transfer, um, not uh, not small micro transactions. Yeah, I guess one way of thinking of it is that you know the the, the container ships are not going to put your uh, local post office out of business. Your local mm-hmm. post office is going to get most out of all these giant container ships, maybe, um, because you know the, the local post office. It used to be before we had container ships and before we had global trade, assuming sort of idealistic world in which we didn't, but we we always did. But you know, before these giant container ships came around most of your trading and your shipping was local with the uh, post office so now this allows you a much bigger capability and so now your local post office will handle the shipments from you to the container ships and back and forth i think this is how how i'd like to think of it yeah i'd agree with that stig any uh, anything for you to jump in on there yeah i, I guess that uh, as we're kind of nearing towards the end of our time what i just wanted to ask you was um it's been this whole thing's been absolutely fascinating it's why i'm being relatively slow in my articulation um how how you see bitcoin progressing over the next five to ten years uh whether it really could actually replace fiat currencies and how it would do that and what a potentially hyper bitcoinized world would look like and would work um yeah so where do you see it going probably is the summary of of those three yeah well, I'd say this. I mean, look, I, I don't like to make predictions and I don't think it's, 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 it's possible to make predictions about complex matters where, you know, the outcome is not going to be determined by some person that you need to predict who's thinking you need to predict. The outcome is going to be determined through the interaction of billions of people around the world. It's, it's far too complex to make predictions about it. Um, but, you know, I have a research uh, bulletin where every month I write... Uh, uh, a research paper on uh, the economics of Bitcoin, and I send it out to subscribers. And in the last month, I discussed three different ways in which I could see Bitcoin, uh, three different paths that Bitcoin could take in the future. And uh, the first one is the one that is most common, I think, the one that most Bitcoiners, I would say, uh, have in mind, and many non-Bitcoiners, is that you know Bitcoin is going to kill the dollar and kill the uh, euro and all these other currencies. And uh, we're going to have hyperinflation like Venezuela. And from the ashes of the hyperinflation, we will um, we will have to go to Bitcoin. And so there's all these apocalyptic scenarios about what Bitcoin will do. And then, um, so I think, you know, I, what I argue is that I'm, I don't find that to be very likely. Because I think, um, I don't, or if it is going to happen, you know, countries that would have hyperinflation because of their own incompetence, not because of Bitcoin. Bitcoin itself, I doubt that it will bring about hyperinflation. And I, in, in, in that research paper I discuss it, um, I, I make my case for why I don't think Bitcoin drives hyperinflation. And I don't think I've heard anybody make this case before. But simply it comes down to the fact that when people think of Bitcoin and hyperinflation, they think that the demand for the dollar is going to collapse and that's going to lead to uh, the value of the dollar collapsing. But what they miss is that the flip side of the story is that what Bitcoin is going to do is that if you know if demand for Bitcoin expands, Bitcoin is hard money, and people on hard money face a different interest rate and different um, time preference decision than people who are on easy money. In other words, when you're uh, when you didn't have Bitcoin, your only choice was borrow at say three percent or save at one percent. And so, you know, you had low interest rates and so you were more likely to, you were likely to borrow a lot and save little. Um, Now with Bitcoin, you know, the potential for saving in Bitcoin doesn't offer you a percentage increase in the return, but it does offer you more um, likely some form of appreciation over time. So people are likely to save more and they're likely to want to get into debt less. So as the Bitcoin economy grows, not only does demand for the dollar decrease, also demand for loans in dollars will likely decrease. But people, uh, but what the implication of that is that if people are not taking out as much loans, 
then the supply of the dollar is also not increasing because the way that the monetary system, the way that the fiat monetary system functions is that money is created when banks make loans. And so if banks are making a lot of loans, the money supply increases. If banks aren't making a lot of loans, then the money supply declines or doesn't decrease or increases a little bit. So Bitcoin, I think, is likely to lead to a reduction in the supply of the money of government money through a reduction of borrowing as well as a reduction in the demand for it and so if central banks continue to manage their monetary policies so that they you know the central banks that have avoided hyperinflation and that have enough control over the credit creation process that they have prevented this kind of hyperinflationary scenario from happening so far i think they're not going to be witnessing this um uh, difficult of a challenge in terms of hyperinflation like what um, many imagine because not only will Bitcoin be derived, de depriving them of demand, it will also be solving that other side of the problem by depriving them of money supply and so reducing the money supply. So it could be that over time, you know, there doesn't have to be a giant apocalyptic economic collapse. Primarily also because when these collapses happen, you know, in hyperinflation, like what we see in Venezuela today, the reason things are bad is not just because the Bolivar is collapsing. It's because there's no alternative to the Bolivar. There's no, the, the, uh, there's no other monetary system that people could use. And without a monetary system and without a division of labor, all of the um, – all of the um, – all of the things that make modern life possible become unworkable, and so modern society collapses. Modern society falls apart. It's not um, it's 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 not possible to continue to have a society that functions without the division of labor that is afforded to us by a monetary standard. And so, um, when a currency collapses in a case of hyperinflation, it's always because of the supply increases, and it leads to the people who are using it to not have a better option or not have anything else to use. And the value collapses um, and, and, and the economy comes to a standstill. But in the case of Bitcoin, we're not going to have the money supply increase of the currencies. And on the other hand, we are not going to have people being left stranded without a monetary system because anybody who drops the dollar will only you know will not be left alone will not be left with nothing people are leaving the dollar and going to bitcoin so they you know if you move the bitcoin economy you're already plugged into a monetary system and are able to buy and sell. You don't necessarily hyperinflate because its size is being reduced as people are leaving it and the money supply is declining. Amazing. That's uh, you've just blown my mind, safe. Thank you. Uh, thank <laughs> no, you I'm literally just sitting here, just going, oh, "Wow." Yeah, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to press stop and uh, and just re-listen to that a few times before i uh before i come back to you no that that's um that's amazing thank you um, i've got i've got nothing i've got nothing left really no i'm done i need a break um safe um how you walk around every day with all this knowledge in your head i don't know but um but it's uh, it's been amazing talking to you we've got two final short questions for you before we finish this is okay. the Crypto and Grill podcast, as you well know. Um, one question, we actually taken it upon ourselves to try and find out something that nobody has yet to date been able to solve um, in the Bitcoin uh, sphere. Um, you seem to know an awful lot about Bitcoin, um, Saifedean. Um, so my question to you is, are you Satoshi? <laughs> no, I'm not. Oh, we're getting closer. Continues. One by Satoshi one, continues. we're getting there. Um, Final question for you, Safe. Um, so uh, after this uh, knowledge, we need a break. Um, you, you're going to throw a barbecue. Uh, we're going to have a crypto conf uh, at your house in uh, in Lebanon. Uh, we're going to all come around. What are you going to grill for the guests? Because I know you have a very specific diet and you're uh, you're very into your your meat. So um, so what yeah. would you grill for guests on the barbecue? And who would you invite? 
Okay, well, what I would grill is um, I'd uh, I'd go with porterhouses. Like if I had a special occasion and I wanted to celebrate, my steak of choice is the porterhouse. I love it. Uh, it's it's just you know it looks glorious, it tastes glorious, and it's just uh, it's it's. Um, it, it's the perfect mix of uh, meat and fat. I must admit, I I used to be a ribeye fanatic, and I still, of course, love ribeyes. But mm-hmm. after a couple of years of doing the carnivore uh, diet, um, I've started to like leaner cuts of meat more and more. So I used to love the ribeyes. Now I still love it, but I prefer the porterhouse because it's a little leaner. The ribeye is usually a little bit fattier. I don't know why I've started to like uh, less fatty meat a little bit more now, but uh, it's uh, it's no problem for me. Um, so I definitely grill porterhouse and lamb chops, uh, lamb, a rack of lamb ribs. This is the local specialty here. Um, here in the Levant, in Lebanon, in the region, we have the uh, we have maybe what is the most delicious lamb in the world. It's it's quite different from the lamb meat that you get in uh, Europe and the U.S. and Canada, I think. So generally, I don't really like eating lamb in uh, the U.S. or Europe. But here in Lebanon, I, I prefer lamb to beef because the lamb that we have is extremely extremely delicious it's called awasi lamb if you are interested in it it's the fat tail lamb it comes with about two to three kilograms of uh, just pure fat in its tail and that's uh, that's really been the uh, the nutritional powerhouse that has maintained this part of the world for millennia so far so i'd also get the ribs of that and make and grill it on my wood fire grill Amazing! Wow, when, amazing. When's it, take, when's it happening? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, perfect. I'll send you some pictures of my grill. I've uh, I've got a pretty serious uh, grilling uh, habit going on. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> awesome! Love it, yeah. love it. Safe. This has been fantastic. Um, you are welcome to uh, to an inferior rack of lamb uh, in London anytime you are back over to visit on us. So um, uh, do give us a shout. But thank you so much for your time. Um, Stig, any final comments? No, it's been amazing to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. It, it's been mega. Yeah, I'm going to go and lie, lie down and digest this uh, information. So uh, thank <laughs> you so much. Man. Yeah, exactly. Cheers. Uh, thank, thank you, you guys. Safe. It's been a lot uh, of fun. Thank you. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. <laughs> <laughs>